again. After singing the last song and then let us love and sing and wonder, I'm like, let's, let's just go home. Um, but i got to preach. And uh, God's people gather to hear his word, uh, not simply to sing. This morning we will be in the book of Galatians, uh, verses 4 through 7. And uh, we continue in our series of, uh, about union with Christ. And this morning we will be looking at the doctrine of adoption. Adoption. So if you have your Bibles, open them to Galatians 4. And if you are there, please follow along as I read. Uh, the Lord Jesus commands his church to both, both to the public reading of his word and to the preaching of his word. Uh, and that's what we are doing right now. Let's read the word together. Galatians 4, starting with verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God. Amen. Please join me in prayer. Father, I feel insufficient to declare to your people the excellency and glories of Christ, the Son of God, this morning. But I pray that you will make your Word plain and clear to us, that you will minister to us by the illumination of your Spirit. We pray that the Spirit of God will be at work applying God's Word to His people. We pray that the Spirit of God will show His power on earth even this morning as I try to proclaim Your Word faithfully, that the Spirit of God will be transforming our hearts into the likeness of Christ. Father, we pray that the same Spirit will take Your Word and by Your grace, you will exalt the glory of Christ in our hearts, Father, that we may love Lord Jesus even more today. Father, I pray that you will speak to each one of my brothers and sisters and that you will speak to us as a body and that you will make much of Christ as we treasure your glory in him. We pray these things for the glory of Christ and in his name. Amen. So in his book, Knowing God, the now late G.I. Packer, he passed away last week. G.I. Packer writes this. He says that adoption is the Christian's highest privilege. The Christian's highest privilege. Higher even than justification, as much as we love justification by grace through faith. Justification, Packer says, is the primary and fundamental blessing of the gospel, but not the highest. He writes, quote, 
To be right with God the judge is a great thing, praise God. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father is a greater. It's a greater. You see, friends, in, in justification, God says to you, you are justified, you are forgiven, and that is great news. But with adoption, God says, you are mine. You are my child. So adoption, as one pastor defines it, is the gracious act of God wherein He makes justified sinners His beloved children. The gracious act of God wherein He makes justified sinners His beloved children. So adoption takes you from God's court to God's table as He welcomes you home. He welcomes us home as His children. So let me ask you this morning what I have been asking myself all all week. Do you know God only as the judge who justifies you? Or do you know Him as the God who, having justified you, loves you and welcomes you as His beloved child. And there's a big difference between the two, brothers and sisters. The reality is that many of us, many of us, spend a lot of time in God's court just in case He changes His mind. Just in case He changes His mind. While a feast is offered us at His table. So adoption is the highest Christian privilege. It will be silly of me to say I disagree with Packer this morning. It is the, Christian, the highest Christian privilege to know God as Father and to be known by Him as His son or daughter. And it is this highest of Privileges that defines the people of God. Adoption defines who we are. And our passage this morning from Galatians 4, I think, offers us at least three ways in which adoption defines who we are. We are the children of God, we are heirs with Christ, and we are indwelled by the Spirit. Children of God, heirs with Christ, indwelt by the Spirit. So we begin with our first defining truth. The doctrine of adoption defines the people of God as the children of God. You see, friends, God's salvation in the Scriptures is unfolding. Unfolding, meaning that it is revealed throughout time and moves in a forward Direction. So you can think of God's salvation as a train. And then you have the, 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 the train tracks which, on which uh, salvation moves. And the train tracks of salvation are called the covenants. God's agreements of special relationships with His people throughout the Bible. Now, not everyone agrees about how many covenants there are in the Bible and how each one of them functions but for our purposes this morning, all we need to see in Galatians 
is that Paul is contrasting two of these covenants in the context of chapter 3 and chapter 4. On the one hand, it is what, he, what Paul calls the period of captivity under the law. And on the other hand, we have what he calls the time when faith will be revealed or the coming of Christ. So if you want, look to chapter 3, verse 23 really quick. 3.23, Paul says, Now before faith came, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, in prison until the coming of faith will be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came. So there's a then, and then there's an until, now. Paul uses the idea of a guardian or a nurse to describe the unfolding nature of God's salvation as it moves from His covenant with Israel at Sinai, which was administered by the law, to His new promised covenant announced by the prophets in which faith is revealed in Christ. So in Paul's view, the old covenant functioned as a guardian nursing a child until his coming of age, when he will receive his full inheritance. In other words, the covenant with Israel was only provisional until the coming of something better. And that something better, Paul says, is now here. It's ours. And that's where we pick up in verse 4 in our passage. Read there with me, verse 4. Paul writes, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. You see, the period of nursing is over, and the coming of age, the fullness of time, has come at the appointed time. Redemption, salvation, has arrived in Jesus Christ. So from Genesis 3 to Revelation 22, the Bible's story is the drama of God saving His people. And everything, everything that God promised and did for His people in the past finds its fulfillment in the Lord Jesus. So that we can say the salvation is summed up in Christ. Salvation is summed up in Him according to Paul. Paul goes on to tell us in what manner the Father sends the Son. Look there again in the text with me. Paul says that the Son is born of woman and born under the law. Notice that God's sending forth the Son doesn't mark the beginning of the life of the Son but the beginning of His advent and ministry on earth. So the Son is not created by the Father, but sent forth when the appointed time had come. Remember, friends, that the Lord Jesus Christ is the one through whom God created the world, Colossians 1.16. The Lord Jesus has no beginning, and everything that is exists because of Him. John 1, three, 
And more than that, the Lord Jesus is the image of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. Hebrews 1, 3. In other words, as the church has confessed throughout the ages, the Lord Jesus is fully divine. He is God of very God and equal with the Father. And yet, and yet he is born of woman, Paul says. So the one who upholds the universe by the power of his word humbles himself, steps down to earth, born as a baby at a time when there was no room for him at the inn. And it was not a silent night. There was blood on the ground, the stable wasn't clean, and the cobblestones were cold, as one of my, of my favorite songs says. He was born of woman. He really took on human flesh, brothers and sisters. He really took on human flesh. And here is the glory of the incarnate one. Here's the beauty and the splendor of Christ as both His glory as the Son of God and His humility in His sending forth are held together in perfect harmony. And the proportions are not 50% glory and 50% humility, but 100% glory and 100% humility at the same time and in the same person. One person, two natures, with no confusion or change, without division or separation, as the church has confessed for ages. The gloriously humble and humbly glorious Christ. So the, the baby in the manger is the Son of God, the Savior of God's people. It's incredible. It's a miracle. Now, not only is Jesus born of woman, Paul says, but he is also born under the law. Born under the law. You see, in his humanity, Jesus accomplished what Israel had failed to do. Israel was a disobedient son who broke the covenant. Jesus comes as the obedient son to fulfill the covenant, and through his obedience, he brings redemption to God's people. Look there in verse 5. The Father sent the Son born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. And what is the result of redemption? Look there again. So that we might receive adoption as sons. The result of redemption is adoption to God. Through his obedience and by his death on the cross, Christ makes sons and daughters out of slaves. He makes sons and daughters out of slaves. What the law couldn't do, Paul says, Christ has accomplished. He has freed us from bondage to sin and death. He has purchased us by his blood, as we sang earlier. And we are no longer slaves. We are no longer slaves, but children of God. 
It is by the merit of the obedience of the Son of God and in our union with Him by faith that we become children of God. See, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, John says. That we should be called children of God, and so we are. Why should I gain from His reward? I cannot give an answer. What kind of love is this? It is the kind of love that you cannot earn by your own effort. It is undeserved love. It is adoptive grace through Jesus Christ. It is adoptive grace through Christ. In praying to the Father in John 17, Jesus says, Father, I may known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Brothers and sisters, in our union with Christ, we have been adopted to God as His beloved children. And therefore, we have come to know the very same love with which the Father knows and loves the Son. And if you cannot wrap your mind around that, neither can I. We know God as Father in the same way that the Lord Jesus knows Him as Father. And we are known by God as His children in the same way that the Son is known by the Father. So the doctrine of adoption defines the people of God as the children of God. That's who you are if you are in Christ this morning. Second, adoption defines us as the heirs with Christ. We will skip over verse 6 right now and come back to it in a moment. At this point, I want us to first see Paul's connection between verse 5 and his conclusion in verse 7. Then an heir through God. By the way, this is an aside note. In the first century, it was the son who inherited the inheritance from the father. So it's good news that both sons and daughters are called sons in, in the scriptures. That means that even women are uh, inheriting God's salvation. That's good news. It has nothing to do with our current conversations about gender and things like that. It's good news that you uh, are in, uh, inherit God's salvation as a son. You're no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. So Paul's conclusion is that since Christ has freed us from slavery into adoption, we are therefore heirs through God. That means that sonship in the son is inheritance with the Son. Sonship with the Son means inheritance in the Son. So what is the inheritance and what is the connection to adoption and sonship? Paul makes the connection for us earlier in the letter in chapter 3, verse 29. 
There he writes, And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So I'm going to do a quick sort of Old Testament survey and journey. Paul here is tying inheritance to the promise that God gave Abraham in Genesis 12. And in you shall the families, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God later affirms this promise in Genesis 17 when he tells Abraham that he will become the father of many nations. All the families of the earth shall be blessed. You will be the father of many nations. Same promise, different angle. Paul picks up this promise in Romans 4. He says that the promise to Abraham and his offspring is that he will be heir of the world. So Paul, the New Testament author, is interpreting for us the significance of God's promise to Abraham in the Old Testament. And the significance is this. Abraham's offspring will inherit the world, and in doing so, the world will be blessed through him. Now remember, we said at the beginning that God's salvation is unfolding. So God's promise to Abraham is later in the Old Testament applied or focused in God's covenant with David, where God promises David a future son who will reign as king forever. This king will rule God's people, and in his rule, he will bring blessing to God's people. Psalm 2, for example, speaks of this king like this. The Lord say, said to me, you are my son. There you have sonship. Today I have begotten you. And here comes the connection to Abraham's promise. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. So you see how the unfolding promise works. The offspring of Abraham and the descendant of David are one and the same. The king is a son to God who inherits the world and in doing so brings blessing to the world. Does it sound familiar to you? I hope he does. Jesus is the promised seed of Abraham and Jesus is the promised king of David's line. Christ, the author of Hebrews says, is the one appointed to inherit all things. And as the heir of the world, Jesus brings salvation to everyone who by faith comes under his rule. So what is the connection between union with Christ, sonship, and inheritance? If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. You see, it is in our union with the promised offspring of Abraham that we, that we become Abraham's offspring. And it is in our union with the promised son who inherits the world and blesses the world that we become heirs with him. We are Abraham's offspring. We are sons of God, not by nature, but through adoption. That is, 
through a union with Christ. And brothers and sisters, our inheritance is nothing less than the inheritance of Christ the Son Himself. Man, I feel like I cannot do service to everything that I just said. For you to see the connection of our sonship in Christ. In Christ, God offers us the world. He offers us everything, brothers and sisters. And everything is summed up in Christ as the one who holds all things together and the one who has reconciled all things to Himself. Christ, in other words, Christ is the sum of our inheritance. He Himself is the treasure. All things are yours, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3. Whether the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ's. And Christ is God's. What is our inheritance? All things, all things in the Son. He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him, with Him, graciously give us all things? All things are yours in Christ. And yet, and yet, as C.S. Lewis famously wrote, we are half-hearted creatures, fooling around with all kinds of things when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased, Louis says. And friends, to be honest, this is the kind of thing that keeps pastors awake at night. The question of, have I labored in vain? Have I been able to show the people who God entrusted to my care how precious Christ is? So that they will treasure Him above everything else? Friends, we live in a time when the glory of God in Christ is taken by the church way too lightly. Christians are more preoccupied by the latest Facebook update or the latest news headline or the latest statistic than they are with the things of God. But brothers and sisters, we are heirs of promise with Christ, Paul says. So rather than constantly picking up all the mud pies that the world offers, let us continue giving ourselves to the pursuit of infinite joy that is ours in God through Jesus Christ. Let us be the kind of church that is not entertained with what the world says is important and urgent. Let us stay the course of making much of Christ by proclaiming His gospel and treasuring God's glory in Him. 
For all things are yours in Christ. We are heirs of promise through God. The doctrine of adoption defines the people of God as the children of God, as the heirs with Christ, and finally as those who are indwelled by the Spirit. Indwelt by the Spirit. Because you're no longer slaves but sons, Paul says in verse 6, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. At various times throughout the history of the church, the giving of the Spirit has been treated as a sort of appendix to the unfolding purposes of God. So, you get salvation in Christ, and then, yeah, maybe you get the Spirit as a bonus. But that is not the way that the Scriptures present the Spirit in God's purposes of redemption. According to the Bible, the giving of the Spirit is the surety, the surety of God's salvation. So when God promises a new and everlasting covenant through the prophet Ezekiel, He says this, I will put My Spirit within you and cause you to walk in My statutes and be careful to obey My rules. I will put My Spirit within you. So the Spirit is central to God's salvation. You can think about the book of Acts also, where the giving of the Spirit is presented again and again as the evidence that God's salvation has come in Christ. And Paul, he says in Ephesians that the promised Spirit is the deposit of our inheritance until we possess it in full in the last day. So the giving of the Spirit into our hearts is not a bonus to God's promise, but the evidence that the fullness of time has come in Christ. In other words, the Spirit is the promise. The Spirit of the Son applies to us what the Son has accomplished. The Spirit also dwells in the people of God and marks them off from the world as the children of God. So how do you know that the church is the people of God? Because the Spirit dwells in us as we cry, Abba, Father. You see, the Spirit creates in us a new heart as God has promised. He gives us a new nature and a new disposition of the heart whereby we confess God as Father and walk as His children. And this is the way the world knows that we are the children of God, by the way we live by the Spirit who dwells in us. We are indwelled by the Spirit, and so we walk by the Spirit. So earlier in the service, Greg read from us from Galatians 5. Now I would like for us to turn there as we close. Galatians 5. Remember that chapter divisions in the Bible are... are sort of random, right? So we, we, we need to read letters together. So this is Paul's application about adoption. 
Galatians 5. To be sure, there is much we could say from Paul's contrast between walking by the Spirit and walking in the flesh. But because of time, I would like to simply point out one thing. And that is Paul's emphasis on the fruit of the Spirit in the life of the church. We often think about the indwelling of the Spirit in individual terms. And that's okay because the Spirit is sent into our hearts so that each individual believer has the Spirit. But Paul's application in this portion of the letter is more communal, corporate, rather than individual. So we pick up in verse 13 and notice Paul's emphasis on the life of the church. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. The whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. So Christians exercise their newfound freedom in the church, not by devouring one another, but by serving one another in love. Paul also contrasts walking by the Spirit to what he calls the works of the flesh in verse 19. And notice again, the, uh, the focus on the corporate life of the church, especially in the middle of, of the list of these vices. Verse 19, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. And here it comes. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. Now, contrary to these things, the fruit of the Spirit, Paul says, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So what does it look like for the children of God to be indwelled by the Spirit and to walk by the Spirit? Well, Paul says it looks like loving one another and serving one another. It looks like looking for ways to sow the seed of joy, of peace, of patience, of kindness, of self-control, so that the church, so that the church may grow and flourish. Friends, this is the kind of spiritual fruit that marks the church as the people of God in the world. So I think that we should be concerned, brothers and sisters, by the prevalence, the prevalence of dissension and strife in the church at large today. Where if you pay attention, there is a notable lack of joyful peace and loving self-control in both attitude and tone. And my charge to you as one of your pastors, Midtown Baptist Church, is not to give in to that kind of living. But to remember that God did not send His Son to bleed and die for His people so that we will devour one another. That is not why Christ died. 
And to remember that God did not send the promised spirit into our hearts so that we will divide over issues that are not central to God's purposes in Christ. Friends, the world demands, it demands from us the kind of thinking and attitude and living that is limited to simply choosing sides and pits you against other people as your enemies. But that is not the way the children of God ought to live. We have been given the Spirit of the Son in whom we share God as Father. We are children of God, and that means that we are family. We are family, brothers and sisters, children of God. We are family. So I plead with you, I plead with you, brothers and sisters, do not be the kind of Christian who, rather than building up the body of Christ, tears it down with divisive attitudes and conversations or comments. Let us not be carnal. Let us not be carnal, but instead let us walk by the Spirit who dwells in us. Ask yourself, ask yourself as I need to ask myself often, am I sowing to the Spirit or am I sowing to the flesh? Friends, the world will know that we are the people of God, indwelled by His Spirit as we walk in love towards one another. So let us give ourselves wholeheartedly to the Spirit-filled ministry of serving and preferring one another in Christ. Let's do that and let's bring glory to Christ in doing so. So the doctrine of adoption teaches us that we are not merely, not merely forgiven, but accepted and welcomed by God the Father as His beloved children. Adoption is the Christian's highest privilege. It is the privilege of sitting at the table with God our Father, of inheriting all things with Christ our brother, and of living as family with our brothers and sisters by the Spirit. Friends, we could have never earned such love and provision by our own effort. But in His grace, in His grace, God chose to save us through adoptive love. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Praise be to God. Please pray with me. Father, we prayed for the Spirit of God to take your word, to apply it to our hearts, to conform us more into the image of Christ. Please help us, Father, to walk in our identity as children of God, treasuring the glory of Jesus together as a family. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.